Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to the October 2020 edition of Outward. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate, And I, for one, welcome the season where queer women's fashion truly takes center stage. We've got beanies. We've got Doc Martens. We've got flannels. We've got cardigans. We've got hoodies. It's like we've got cargo pants and Carhartts. This is truly the season that was made for lesbians. And every year it's like we come out of our... You know, whatever we wore during the summer, some of us, it was little bikinis. Some of us, it was, you know, board shorts. But we coalesce as one each fall, and I am proud to see it every year. This is your moment to shine, Christina. That's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm Ramon Alam, and this October is even scarier than most because I'm talking about the election. And the way that I've been dealing with it is by stocking up on candy. It's not for trick-or-treaters because part of what's scary about this moment is we don't even know if we're going to have any of those. Mm -hmm. So every night for the past few weeks after the kids are asleep have found me in the kitchen, scrolling the headlines on Twitter, shoveling Hershey's Kisses into my (laughs) face. But, you know, whatever it takes. And and as Christina noted, I could just put on a cardigan and sort of hide my winter body that way. <laughs> no, let it shine. Let it show. Um, speaking of hiding, I'm Brian Lauder, uh, editor of Outward. And I only came out from the rock that I've been hiding under until the election out of my deep love for y'all and our listeners. Uh, but please, let's really make this quick so I can get back in there because I don't <laughs> want to know what's happening at all. <laughs> have you been, Brian, have you been avoiding the news? I know it's well, probably impossible in your job. I, I think I'd be fired from Slate if I said I was avoiding the news. So no, but I, I have tried, as we've gone on, to reduce my intake outside of work um, necessities because it, it, it is, as I'm sure for many folks listening, um, it's, it's not healthy um, to be to be whiplashed every time a, a, a push alert comes. So, um, so yeah, I haven't actually been hiding, but I have definitely been um, sort of trying to control the flow uh, until you know, we actually know something uh, at the end. I highly recommend getting a bag of Hershey Kisses. (laughs) (laughs) That is like the, the classiest little like mass market candy you could possibly be eating, Ruman. I'm a class act, Christina. (laughs) So before we get into today's show, I have a request to make. If you're listening, if you like this podcast, subscribe, tell a friend to subscribe, give us a five star rating, Show us some love. All right. As you all know, or as you may not know, October is LGBTQ History Month. And we are staying on theme with our episode. We are going to take a look at two recent entries into the queer historical record, two different views of queer history, to which I guess we'll pose the question, how do we remember the past and how does the form of our historical documentation affect the way the content is understood? 
So the first thing we're going to talk about is a new Netflix remake of Boys in the Band. It was a 1968 play, a 1970 film. Um, The play was revived in 2018, and now it's a 2020 film with the same cast from the recent play. The original was one of the first, if not the first, cultural products to focus exclusively on gay people. So we're going to talk about what that production meant back then when it came out and what place the new version might hold in our culture today. Then we'll discuss Equal, a new HBO docuseries about major players in LGBTQ life in the decades before Stonewall. Uh, This series is very clearly trying to do something new uh, in terms of representing history in a relatively straightforward way, but with a mix of primary source documents and footage, reenactment, dramatic voiceover, We're going to ask, what is that new thing that it's trying to do? And does it succeed at doing that? Uh, We're going to attempt to figure that out. And finally, for our gay agenda, we will present to you our favorite things to do, watch, read, etc. to better understand queer history. But first, we begin, as always, with our prides and provocations. Brian, what do you have for us? Well, first, um, I think we have a a sort of... um, pride within our organization here at the Outward Podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, As you out there may know, our colleague Ruman uh, Alam has published a new book this month uh, to much acclaim. Um, It's called Leave the World Behind. It is a National Book Award finalist in fiction. Um, I'm reading it now, and I'm going to give you all the real tea. It's kind of just okay. <laughs> no, actually, actually, it is really, it's really fantastic, and it lives up to all the hype. Um, and this isn't an ad. This is not an ad. But uh, you, could we're just far... so proud of him. Oh, yeah, we're thank so you proud. Guys. And you could do far worse than reading reading that this, thank this fall. You. So, thank uh, congrats, Ramon. I feel like we're just basking in your glow, like when. Jenna Bush is on the friggin' Today Show promoting Ruman Alam's book. I mean, how do you how do you ascend from there? You've been getting <laughs> acclaim from all corners of the cultural universe. How are you dealing with it? It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. I mean, the thing about writing a book is that it's just such a long, long leap of faith that one that Brian is engaged in right now personally, and so he knows this well. And if you're lucky, you have an editor telling you that your work is good, um, or you, you have an agent telling you that your work is good, but that's a lot like having your parents tell you that you're handsome. <laughs> like, <laughs> of course, you expect to hear that. And to watch the book come to life when it goes out to a readership is just extraordinary. It's exactly what you always hope for. And I'm so happy. I'm so thrilled. So thank you for mentioning it and embarrassing me in this context. It's very sweet of you guys. Um, it's been a great I mean, I can't think me. of a better person for this kind of success oh, to happen you. to. So thank it just, you. it does make me really proud. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, so now we're done with that. So in, <laughs> <laughs> moving on. <laughs> moving on. Uh, in addition to that pride, I have another one, um, which is about the New Fest, which is a um, uh, New York LGBT film festival that's existed for like 32 years. But this year, uh, they have 
made us proud by going all the way online in the midst of the pandemic. Um, so there are like 120 films that normally you'd have to be in New York to go see, um, you know, from shorts to features and all the rest. Uh, but now they're all streamable online um, and you can catch them from, I think it's the 16th through the 27th. We'll put a link up, but uh, 16th through the 27th of October. Um, and I've just, uh, to slightly broaden the pride a little bit, I've seen a few of our queer film festivals sort of attempt this to varying degrees of success uh, in the past, you know, six or seven months. Um, and it's a huge undertaking, and I'm just uh, amazed to see it happen. And, and this is a highlight of my fall every year, so I'm glad that it can be a highlight of, of other folks. So uh, props to the New Fest people for making the transition to digital uh, so seamlessly. That's so great. It is great. And, you know, it's like you hope that these arts organizations and institutions are able to adapt to this current moment so that they can survive into Mm -hmm. whatever the future looks like. So that is reassuring to hear that people are responding so creatively to the challenges of this moment, you know? Yeah. Totally. So if you want to go check out any of the films uh, in the festival this year, check out uh, newfest.org. Um, Ruman, how are you feeling this month? You know, I'm feeling a little provoked and I'm sort of struggling to articulate the nature of this particular provocation. So people on the internet in the last couple of weeks um, have been trying to reclaim Proud Boys Mm -hmm. um, to be not about the white power organization, but to be about gay pride. I mean, to be clear, what I'm talking about is really my own sense of being provoked during the presidential debates, and I'm making air quotes around debates, when (laughs) the president, and I'm making air quotes around president, declined to condemn the so-called Proud Boys, right? This was a response by the sort of chattering classes on social media to say, let's defeat the Proud Boys by redefining Proud Boys as gay couples making out with one another or just sort of being proud and out, I struggle with this because gay pride is a very necessary rejoinder to a culture that treats gayness, queerness, as shameful. White pride is just an aggrieved sense of hatred that's Mm -hmm. based in delusion. So to counter the one with the other seems to misunderstand the language itself. And it makes me irritated in some strange way that I have trouble holding on to, to change the subject from the pernicious evil of white pride to what gay pride is meant to represent. The one has very little to do with the other. And it feels instead of, it's meant to feel sort of like this act of revolution, but to me it feels diminishing and sort of frustrating. Yeah, I see what you mean. And it when I saw that happening on social media, it brought to mind um, how I feel when I would see pictures of people like making out in front of the Westboro Baptist Church yeah. protesters. Yes, exactly. I'm like, actually... Mm -hmm. I think the best thing to do is just starve them of attention. I realize that it's kind of impossible when the president is on television provoking and encouraging them, but I don't feel like we need to be a part of, you know, giving them exactly what they want by calling attention to them and making them more of an influence in public conversation. Especially in so juvenile and, like, overly demonstrative a fashion, as you're saying. Like, the Westboro Baptist Church is engaged in something very serious and very evil that deserves to be talked about for what it is. And, you know, kissing in front of those protesters is not the rejoinder that it sounds like. It's not the triumphant. It's not like a triumph, you know? it's It seems very small to me, actually. And they're not triggered by that. I don't think they're, like, triggered in the same way that we are. Because, as you said, they're 
pride or whatever is not motivated is motivated by hate. It's not motivated by any legitimate sense of, you know, um, discrimination or like feeling or, or re- reclaiming any sort of uh, marginalized characteristic. Yeah, I've seen I've also seen like other another reaction to the Westboro folks, which is interesting is is instead of, of doing like the kissing thing, it's like actually blocking them out. So building, oh, yeah. you know, a big like large rainbow flags or doing sort of like I think angel wings. Yes, yeah, angel wings. Yeah. 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 Um, I think I might have seen that uh, in Orlando after Pulse, actually. But um, but yeah, it, so instead of instead of sort of there's something different about the kissing, which is like you're right they're not triggered by that but just blocking them out entirely makes more sense to me as a reaction and i don't know how you do that with like a hashtag exactly but it but but it feels like that's the kind of thing you want to do you want to starve it rather than just give it this this enhanced energy i mean taking taking white pride seriously intellectually at all is Mm -hmm. a pointless endeavor and so choosing to talk about other things and especially when you're talking about um the proud boys stand in opposition to you know, the kind of society that we ought to strive for. So to choose not to take that seriously rather than changing the subject back to queerness seems more effective to me anyway. Yeah. You know? It also just occurred to me that, like, the Proud Boys is not an anti-LGBTQ group. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> they're no, not. Yeah. No. I mean, I'm sure they're not particularly welcoming of queer people, but their main focus is racism yeah and it just should, feels like taking up, the, but i'm sure that there are probably some white gay guys in the problem yeah that, would not that wouldn't surprise me, me at all at all no. well i mean there's always something suspicious about a group that terms itself boys right <laughs> it's a little queer if you ask me and who's like number one rule is that no one's allowed to masturbate <laughs> right. exactly christina how are you feeling this month i'm feeling pride um So I'm not sure if y'all are aware of Chica, who's a fantastic hip hop and R&B artist who has really achieved a lot of um, well-deserved acclaim this year. Um, So she's gay. She um, released a new EP in the spring and did an NPR Tiny Desk concert and has been sort of gaining fame since then. This month, she was on Jesus and Miro and did an acoustic version of her song, You Should. And for me, in a season that has been so full of estrangement and fear, so many feelings of alienation from my community, in part because of the pandemic, um, and in part because of politics, it was just, it filled me with warmth to see this incredible queer artist doing what she does best and getting so much love for it. And I mean, her voice is just like hot apple cider. It's comforting and also incredibly sexy. And um, I, though queer people are so highly represented in art and in music, it does feel to me like there aren't that many songs that are just explicitly gay when you like love songs about gay people loving on gay people and admiring other gay people and this song is just full of desire and admiration it's about seeing someone at a party who's dancing and you know you can't stop looking at her and uh it reminded me what being at a party felt like (laughs) and uh it already kind of made me excited for next summer um (laughs) 
just seeing somebody talking about love in what I imagine is like LA or somewhere that's a lot warmer than where I am right now. I love that. And the power of art in this moment, like, as you said, mm-hmm. like if you're feeling isolated, if you're feeling apart from your normal life, like art still has that power to move us out of that temporarily. Yes. And that's so wonderful in a moment where the power of so many other things has been degraded. Like you can't run to a restaurant with an old friend in quite the same way. So it's so great that you can hear a song and have that emotional response. I love yeah. that. Yeah. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. All right, so as Christina noted at the top of the show, this Queer History Month, we're looking at two different approaches to understanding our past. Mark Crowley's 1968 play and now Netflix movie, The Boys in the Band, and the new HBO Max series, Equal. Um, With Boys, we have an iconic piece about gay life in the 1960s being resurfaced and only slightly reimagined for a new audience. With Equal, we have very modern media sensibilities being used to present important figures and events from the decades before Stonewall, a period that popular understandings of queer history often ignore entirely. Um, I think we probably want to talk about each of these projects separately first, um, and then we'll try to bring them into conversation. Christina, you said that this was your first time experiencing boys. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say it's for me, it's been uh, a super important text as a gay man. I think I've I think I watched like 1970 movie version like every year probably. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, there was this revival uh, on Broadway in 2018 that I saw. Um, so I'm so, so curious to hear what it was like uh, to see it for the first time. And maybe you can begin also by explaining just what the basic plot is. Yeah. So the plot is pretty simple. Um, the main character is a guy named Michael who is a fashionista in deep debt. Um, and he's hosting at his apartment in the village, I imagine, um, a, a dinner gathering for his friend Harold's birthday. So, um, one by one, their friends come over, they each sort of represent a certain type of gay man. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
Eventually, they're joined by Michael's old college roommate, who is ostensibly straight. Um, and, you know, drama ensues. <laughs> uh, there's uh, some homophobia. Eventually, Michael, who has who's a recovering alcoholic, starts drinking and forces them all or, you know, sort of um, aggressively encourages them all to call somebody who they'd had a crush on, who they'd never told that they'd loved. Michael tries to get his old roommate to admit that he's gay. And yeah, I won't spoil much more, but that's the basic gist. And I watched the 2020 movie first, and then I watched the 1970 movie. The I thought the performances in the new version were fantastic. And I believe all of the actors were um, reprising their roles from the Broadway production. So they were very, you know, well-lived in characters. But for me, it was, it, it made me feel bad because the men are incredibly mean to each other, which is part of the point. But I don't think I grasped the full resonance of the point until I watched the 1970 version because it it feels a little bit out of place watching this in 2020 where it's it feels like the the point of remaking it now is just to say like oh look how bad things were back then watching the 1970 version it it was a lot more clear to me um or it was easier for me to imagine what it was like to live in that moment and why part of why these men were terrible to each other is because, you know, they were putting each other down to make themselves feel better. And also because they hated themselves and were projecting that onto other people. So their own insecurities were sort of like ricocheting around the dinner table. Um, and I, I, I'm curious what you get out of it when you watch it every year, because I don't feel like I need to watch it again <laughs> in part because it feels like such a, um, a re- an important relic of a time that maybe now has passed. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'll, I will answer that question and I don't <laughs> want to talk about what meanness means, but Ramon, I want to, I want to get you in first though. What, well, what, yeah. What's your reaction? I mean, I have the shameful confession that I have never seen the original. So this is not a text that had any meaning for me the way that it does for you, Brian. Yeah. Um, and so I watched it and had a very similar response to Christina, which is that I really enjoyed some of the performances. I really enjoyed Jim Parsons' performance. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sort of a, I'm sort of a sucker for him anyway. I think he's he's very an, good, an utterly this. charming performer. Um, there's a lot of charisma and a lot of imagination in these performances, but it is an historical text. And the remake or this version is so faithful to that text that mm-hmm. it doesn't have any kind of perspective on what it's showing us. It's simply showing us the thing. And so it's very hard to understand how you're meant to think about it as it relates to the contemporary moment. I mean, it's depicting a pre-AIDS New York City, right? And so even watching the original, you you understand you understand the the moment that these characters are headed for in a way that they don't understand because it's an historical document. Mm-hmm. A remake can't offer that, at least a remake made so faithfully, cannot offer right. that larger sense of context. And so what you have 
can feel easy to misunderstand as reductive or small as opposed to capturing an historical moment, if that yeah. makes any sense. Like, the original feels like a fly trapped in amber, and that is part of its value. Yeah. And the remake feels like a weird postmodern exercise, almost. It's hard to make sense of for me. And when you say it was a faithful remake, I mean, they basically recreated the entire set. The yeah. two of the characters, the guy who plays Hank and the guy who plays Alan, I mean, they look exactly like the actors who played <laughs> them in the 70s. And we should say, I mean, the, the, the only thing they added, I feel like, were these weird, um, when, when the, during the parlor game that Christina mentioned, where people are supposed to call the, per- the one person they've truly loved, uh, in the new version, they added these sort of um, cutaways to, like, whatever that memory was. Yeah. Which I thought were kind of stupid, mostly. But, um, but that's, that's kind of the only beat that's new at all in, the, in this mm-hmm. new one. So just to Ramon's point, like, it's sort of a strange exercise to, to just literally remake a movie, like, beat for beat. but Brian, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, because you do have this relationship to the original, I wonder if you could explain, like, why it matters to you, why that film has been important to you as a viewer. Yeah, I mean, um, encountering that, encountering the... The first way I saw it was the, the, the 70, 1970 movie version. Um when I watched that, it was like um, stumbling upon this, like, I don't know, set of Egyptian hieroglyphs for, like, <laughs> gayness. Um, it, like, yeah. or, or some sort of, Rosetta Stone is not the right word, but, like, you know what I mean? Some, some sort of codex that, like, explains everything about me and the way I talk to my friends and the way, like, you know, I don't see it as mean. Um, I think it definitely goes to a mean place, but I think a lot of the stuff in the first, I don't know, half, um, the, the, the cattiness, the, the joking, I don't take to be mean. I take it to be a kind, a style of gay, maybe gay male, particularly socializing that, that, uh, is loving in a lot of ways and is, and is, sort of sweet um, mm. and and certainly comes out of, you know, um, perhaps sharpening your claws for the outside world, right? That's like a, that's kind of an understanding of, of, of shade or, or, or sort of intra-queer um, dynamics like this. But, but all the same, I, I don't find, I find it a very funny and kind of uh, lovely play until he turns, and then it, and then I think you see the dark side of that the the intern the the sort of where the communal playfulness around around that kind of thing goes goes dark. But before that, it doesn't. And I I mean actually among certain friends of mine, like I quote a lot of the lines, um, you know, as 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 jokes that I love. So so I I really do see the play at least that first half of it differently. And then I think the second half is like a warning about where, where it can go if, hmm. um, if we're not, you know, don't become more healthy about it. But um, I don't know if that, that was long. So maybe that is a No, that place. makes a lot of sense. And I also, it struck me watching the original that it was probably the oldest depiction of gay culture that I had ever seen. Mm-hmm. And yet so much of the language and the gestures and aesthetics remain the same, our very current feeling, yeah. Um, yeah. which speaks to an incredible continuity of culture and I think is something that gay people should be really proud of. I also think that part of my discomfort comes from watching it as a woman where mm. this is not my culture. You know, we share some things and 
definitely don't share others, you know, like if people in my friend group would ever call each other a bitch or a cunt, like right. that is jarring to me. They use that language a lot and I don't like it. I, yeah. And I don't like when gay men use it. Um, so I think part of it is just like some cultural differences between gay men and, and gay women. Um, and also historical differences, right? So like, this is a text from 1968. It's 2020. So yeah. some of those attitudes have been modulated. There are still sure. gay men who speak this way, but there are also men who understand that like that's not a productive way to speak and that you can show this kind of bickering affection without sort of denigrating, you know, womanhood. You know, that Absolutely. there are other yeah. there's other mm-hmm. ways to discharge that language. And so for me, I am left wondering how a much younger person than me would watch mm-hmm. this film and be mm-hmm. meant to feel about it. And so in some ways, I, 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 I enjoyed the experience of watching the movie, but it felt like a lot of set dressing and a lot of like expensive aesthetic gesture that didn't add Ryan up Murphy. to anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it just felt ultimately like a little emotionless or that or that you needed to put on, um, you needed to approach it almost as an anthropologist to be able to make sense of it. And you know what? I think that's such a great, that, that, that line is is so important because I I think I always have like yeah. so I, I didn't mean to say that I uh, you think those words Christina said should be used I don't I, I yeah. don't use them um, but I I think if you are if you and I should also say I was introduced to this to the film version by a queer historian friend of mine so mm-hmm. I was I was given that context. Yeah from the get-go, right? It wasn't just something that showed up in my Netflix queue. And yeah. I was like, what is, you know, here's a gay movie. What is, like, that? that is a very different experience. Um, and I share your your sort of concern, Ramon, for for what what are the youths, uh, what, what do they make of this thing without, without context? But, um, you know, Ryan Murphy has had a project of, of, of dropping these things on us now for a, a few years. And I wonder, we actually um, wanted to bring in our producer, Daniel, to maybe talk about Ryan Murphy. Our Ryan resident Murphy. Ryan Murphy <laughs> Daniel expert. Daniel shows up with his pink microphone right on cue. <laughs> the Ryan Murphy of it all. Here we is, go. Yeah, that is a player. So yeah, what do, you, what do you think about that, Daniel? Yeah, so I think <clears throat> Ryan Murphy is a interesting creature of American cinema because he has kind of become the like lead go-to person about anything gay. And especially since mm-hmm. like he's made this deal with Netflix in 2018 uh, to make a bunch of content for them, he has kind of become the gay dictator of Netflix. And uh, <laughs> in some ways you could say that's great. It means that they're getting like more gay content out for viewers to see, but then you watch the content and uh, to me it's concerning. Uh, mm-hmm. If it, It's disappointing. And then take it a step further. I, I worry about it because as you're talking about the lack of context for these films uh, and a lack of understanding that a lot of younger people have about the older generations of gayness, uh, Ryan Murphy seems to be much more interested in actually kind of rewriting those or mm-hmm. um, not really kind of maybe making the version of what he wished his past were like, as opposed to like... That was the criticism of Hollywood, right? Yeah, that's that's my big problem with Hollywood, actually, which is uh, one of the series that he made for Netflix before this that is also very explicitly gay. It is about uh, 
few young people in Hollywood trying to make it big. One is a film, one is a screenwriter, one is an actress, one is an actor, et cetera, et cetera. And the, one of the main characters is Rock Hudson. And it's the reason I'm concerned about that series is that it's Ryan Murphy tried to do nonfiction narratives with uh, feud and that didn't pan out for him. I don't know if it's because people just didn't watch it or he wasn't good at making reality, like interpreting reality. So he was like, you know what? I'm just going to make past fiction. And so he kind of, re <laughs> he rewrote all these, like he rewrote Rock Hudson's story and re Rock Hudson is a like important gay cinema yeah. figure mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And there are just a number of ways that he dumbs down history, particularly gay history in a way that, is a loss for a lot of mm. younger viewers. And it's just really disappointing that we've kind of coalesced around him as the only mainstream gay voice and that mm. like his name kind of has to be attached to things now, though when it is, I don't know any gay person who rushes to see it. Yeah, I think this. I think straight people have coalesced yeah. around him yeah. as the gay boys. He Ryan Murphy is ally content. Hmm. I think what you're talking about. I haven't seen Hollywood, but the way you're describing it, Daniel, speaks to a debate that I'm always having within my own head, and that I think has been coming out in a lot of debates, um, not just around how we depict queer people in queer history, but also the history of enslavement and other terrible things that have happened uh, in the past, where there's a very delicate balance to be struck between depicting people's suffering too much and depicting it so little that you're mm. just glossing over the reality of the world. Um, and in The Boys in the Band, there really was only one moment where I could see queer joy happening. And it was when they were doing a dance together yeah. um, that they had learned at Fire Island, you know, sort of remembering a fond moment from their past as friends. And it's interrupted by the straight guy walking in and they have to immediately maskify themselves. And I think there's a lot of talk right now about how damaging it can be to only have narratives of suffering, homophobia, racism, be the kind of representation that we see because it's there, there's then no blueprint for creating uh, a life full of love and, and purpose. And um, I, I think that remaking the boys in the band in 2020 could have been an opportunity for somebody to, um, change the balance a little bit in that script, or at least in the way it's depicted in the show, because things have changed since 1970. And I just wonder, I mean, the, the original film was a very faithful adaptation of the play. And the 2020 film was, as we've discussed, a very faithful remake of the 1970 film. And uh, it, it, you know, I, I feel like it was a little bit of a transparent bid for viewership based on the celebrity cast and you yeah. know, the Ryan Murphy name and, you know, maybe trying to get people to watch a thing that you can't, you know, the 1970 film isn't available anywhere online. Maybe they've heard of this and have never seen it, but it doesn't feel particularly 
responsible. Maybe that's anti-art of me to expect art to be responsible, but... Well, and it doesn't feel like there was a uh, an artistic reason for this. There's no there's yeah no yeah for it yeah yeah. No, I think I think that's so interesting. I, I, I'm coming around. I've been grappling the whole time since we chose this topic with just this question of like, should it have been done? And I and I kind of am coming around to thinking no, which does feel anti-art. But it, but yeah, I I don't think like making that writing that play in '68 and then making that film in '70. Um, I think are responding to a very specific moment in gay consciousness. Mm-hmm. We're right, we're, we're already, you know, Mart Crawley already could see that, like, liberation was coming. Like, he didn't know Stonewall was going to happen, but, like, the trends that led to the 70s were already underway. He's thinking about that, right? So the play is commenting on, you know, this, this experience from sort of the past that a lot of these men had lived through, especially the older ones in the group. And I think you see within them, like, the younger guys already have a, a sort of slightly different consciousness about yeah. about themselves and a sense of confidence even um, compared to like Harold and Michael. Um, Crawley knew, knew what was going on and I think he was sort of trying, I mean, it, actually we had a piece in Slate a few years ago for the Broadway revival from a queer historian, Charles Kaiser, that talked about this, where it's like he he was thinking about what was going to come next and how do we how do we as a as a as a community uh, of of gay men at least like change our consciousness and and stop hating our you know that's the line the big line at the end is like why if we didn't hate ourselves quite so much um, you know rebelling against psychiatry like all the things that were telling us that we were bad and to, to hate ourselves so it speaks the play speaks to that moment and the film speaks to that moment. And we don't live in that moment anymore. So what is the play speaking to? <laughs> like it's 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 you know I, I I think the film thing I can't quite artic- maybe you guys can I can't articulate why that feels just kind of worthless to me. But but that is how it feels. It just feels like it's it's not the sort of cause is not there to to explain the effect uh, to yeah. some degree for viewers. Yeah, we don't live and in it- that moment anymore. That's exactly right, Brian and. That's not to suggest there's no value in preserving that moment so that people younger, people who didn't live through that, understand what it was. There's a lot of value in that. But we already had that artifact, which is the original film, the original text. And I'm not sure that this film, the, the new version, rises to the particular challenge that I think a remake must address, which is why do this now? Especially if the only answer it can offer is gay people hate themselves <laughs> certainly or certainly that is still a very prevalent feeling among all kinds of people who embody difference but i think the cultural conversation around that has changed and evolved and moved beyond the hands of urbane upper middle class mostly white gay people to be about a whole coterie of people it's an umbrella to which we all belong. And I would have loved to see a broader perspective here. And part an art allows you to reinterpret. It gives you a lot of room. So an artist could have really pushed this text. That wasn't the agenda. And so it's not fair for me to like hold the film to a standard it was not trying to meet. It was aiming to recreate something and it does mm-hmm. that pretty well. But I'm not sure it's what is most necessary in this particular moment. Well, thanks for letting me join y'all, but I'm going to, I'm going to drop off so y'all can talk about uh, documentaries. Thank you for your Ryan Murphy expertise, Daniel. Yes. Thank you so much, Daniel. Anytime. 
On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. All right, so let's maybe now turn to Equal. Um, This is the four-part docuseries uh, on HBO Max that tries to acquaint viewers with uh, central narratives and actors in queer history that happened before Stonewall. Um, So we saw three episodes uh, that are going to come out uh, later this month, um, and they covered the early gay rights organizations, the Daughters of Belitis and the Mattachine Society, trans pioneers like Lucy Hicks, and the particular contributions of people of color like Lorraine Hansberry and Jose Saria. Um, this is done with a, let's say, exuberant um, combo of archival footage, uh, staged scenes featuring contemporary queer actors, and a sort of overall narration from Billy Porter. Uh, my friends, I gather from our pre-show slacks that you were not huge fans of, of this show. Uh, Ramon, do you want to start us, start us off with why that might be? I appreciate the particular conundrum for the filmmaker working in the documentary <laughs> form, right? A so documentary, like a documentary is nutritious. It's vitamin-packed. It's boring, right? And the filmmakers seem determined to, in dealing with this material, to give us something that is alive, that shows us how vibrant and how imperative it is for the contemporary generation to understand this history. Unfortunately, I think that the way that they've tried to do that is in their in a very complex aesthetic approach that is almost like collage. So mm-hmm. we have this mix of historical footage of contemporary reenactment that's quite stylized. For example, when we see Lorraine Hansberry in her New York City home, what we're seeing is a stage set mm-hmm. because, of course, she was a playwright. So there's all this sort of like aesthetic gesture that to me undermines the reality of the material. What's fascinating about Lorraine Hansberry is that she was a real person. She lived in this very real moment, and her story is fascinating and very worth looking at. Unfortunately, when it gets so stylized, it feels less relevant, or it's harder for me to hold on to. We hear we hear um, contemporaneous audio, and then we also hear enact reenactment performed by actors. The whole thing is overlaid with a very present narration by Billy Porter that is very, very conversational, very chatty, very informal. It it doesn't suit to me the significance of the material being discussed. And so there's a very strange... And this thing moves very quickly. So, in in fact, what I said to Christina over Slack, and I think this is true, is that this is a document for a TikTok generation. Mm -hmm. It is very quick. It is very loud. It is very, it is this thing, and then that thing, and then this thing, and then that thing. And so, I felt really alienated from it. But what did you guys think? First, I have two major quibbles with it. Quibble is not strong enough for the way I feel. I have two major problems with it. 
Uh-huh. The first is the lack of continuity. So some of these actors who we see in reenactments, incredibly talented actors who I would love mm-hmm. to see in actually well-done historical, fictionalized historical films about these incredible people. Meanwhile, Billy Porter is doing his over-the-top, what I perceive to be as like, a RuPaul's Drag Race sort of version of a Ken Burns narration where he's peppering everything with, like, uh, Harry Hay was a fabulous leader, okay, yeah. honey? Yeah. Like, yes, honey. I yeah, felt like yeah, yeah. Uh, homophobe watching it, honestly, because yeah. it disturbed me so much. And I was constantly like, is he really saying this? Is this really how, when he introduces the Daughters of Belitis, this incredibly important lesbian organization that could be made fun? These women had fun yeah he introduces them by saying and now it's time for the sisters to do it for themselves <laughs> like the laziest possible writing when actually yeah. when you think about what he's saying there were they not doing it for themselves before like words have meaning right. instead right. of making his words have meaning he's just peppering it with recognizable phrases so the form bothered me a lot Mm-hmm. And like Ruman, I had even trouble following it at times yeah, because it was switching lot. between all of these different forms of representation. The other major problem I had is that as they were trying to make it more interesting by, which I, I think this was probably made to be shown in, you know, as a curriculum in California's you must teach about LGBTQ history, <laughs> public school curriculum right. or something. Um, I, think they actually made it more boring because the instead of trying to humanize these people which i think is the most important thing you can do in history to show that these weren't heroes they were people which i I commend them for including a bunch of trans characters who were just people and actually weren't activists in any recognizable way um Mm -hmm. they made it sound like a museum exhibit like where you would just walk up to, you know, a placard, put on a pair of headphones and hear Bayard Rustin say, hey, have you read my FBI file? You know, while getting his <laughs> ear licked by someone he's making out with. Um, at times I felt like it, um, like I was watching the Hall of Presidents at Disney World, which there were enough hints of interesting and new things that it made me realize how much wasn't in there. So there were Mm. a lot of, there was a lot of footage of Lorraine Hansberry of Christine Jorgensen that I had never seen before. And that Mm. captivated me. And I thought, why did they need to have these actors play these roles when you actually had this great footage and the things that I didn't know about, that, or that I wanted to learn more about Christine Jorgensen and Lorraine Hansberry was more about their human lives outside of their incredible accomplishments. Um, and I think that that's actually what is missing from queer history, not something like this. What did you think, Brian? You liked it, right? Yeah. So, well, um, I, so actually, I, I agree with all of the criticism of the production, let's say. I think I did like it more than you guys though, because, um, so, you know, as a, as an LGBT editor and, and writer on queer stuff forever and, and, um, just, just someone who thinks a lot about, uh, queer history all the time. One of my biggest, um, 
just not pet peeve is not a strong enough word for this, like just uh, things that drives me insane is the idea that seems to get reinforced more and more every year that Stonewall was the beginning of gay time. Mm, mm-hmm. That that narrative is just so strong in popular history. Not This is certainly not true in academic history or even, you know, books of history meant for, for normal people, but you can read about all of these, all of, you know, the Machine Society, all of that exists, but in sort of popular media history, it, it doesn't. And so having this uh, series just attempt to tell some of these uh, narratives that existed before, not not even just the figures who are themselves, of course, fascinating, but just the idea that there were that communism was like a yeah, big part that's of true. Um, queer thinking in the fifties and sixties, right? Um, these are all things that fascinate me, but like like you never hear about, and so I was, I guess, I guess it's almost just like a representation argument. I was like excited just to just for the uh, possibility that some you know particularly younger people. Um, and I feel I'm 33. I don't know why I sound so old, but like younger people <laughs> might encounter this stuff because it just, it, it just is not out there in most cases otherwise. Um, so I appreciated the, the effort. And I do think, you know, despite all of the filigree, um, that the archival footage was fantastic. I saw a lot of stuff I'd never seen yeah. before either, Christina. And I, and I was just, you know, I, I mean, I did not know clearly enough about Christine Jorgensen. At yeah. All. Like, mm-hmm. I want to know so much more yeah. now than Who I did. Who was, and just so, for our, our listeners, she was the first mm-hmm. person to, I think the first person, right? Not just the first trans woman. Yeah, the first so. person mm-hmm. to get gender affirmation surgery and then right. became quite famous in the U.S. for it. And Mm -hmm. the archival footage shows us that she was actually an extraordinary advocate for Mm -hmm. herself and for using the media to tell her own story as she wanted it to be told. Really an extraordinary presence on camera, like really Mm -hmm. hard to overstate that. And watching that footage felt like really did move me a great deal. Unfortunately, it's so buried in this aesthetic gesture of hipness. It's you know what I thought of it is I thought of Steve Buscemi pretending to be a teenager oh on God, Dirty yes. Rock. Like it's just like, <laughs> hey kids, like you know, and 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 again the narration. And I I don't. It's hard to know who to fault. It's it's, it's not Billy Porter's fault. It's the writing's fault. The show, as an historical text, must use outmoded languages as a way of explaining what was happening. And so mm-hmm. when there's a point at which Billy Porter says that, and, he's, and, and what he says is like, don't get it twisted. Like, this is like, don't, you know, don't be offended by hearing something that doesn't meet the standards of contemporary language. Useful to say, but really maddening to hear somehow. It just shows me how feeble a contemporary perspective on history can be. Or at least this show thinks thinks of the audience, right? Like that's that's even I, better, Brian. Yes, absolutely. I mean, who do you guys think this text is for? Who is the audience, the intended audience for this show? I like I said, I think it's school children, um, or or young adults, but in a I in a decidedly academic setting. I know when. Y- you talk about documentaries as vitamin rich and, you know, too nutritious, <laughs> unlike your beloved one bars, which are both nutritious <laughs> and delicious. Um, I, I think as much as the, it tries to stave off that 
sort of brittleness with its flash and fanfare, it it still is that, you know, they, they are still just reciting history. Yeah. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with it, but with such great actors, you could have made some incredible biopics that really delved into what I think is missing in queer history, which is more information or even just imagination about what these people's social lives were like and, you know, human desires were like outside of their actual accomplishments in the public eye. So in this episode, we've talked about fact and we've talked about fiction. Do you feel like there is a more appropriate strategy as a way of understanding queer history? I think what these two... Uh, different approaches to queer history told me is that we actually know a lot about how people have suffered, how queer people have been oppressed, discriminated against, and how they've fought back against it. And what I am hungry for now, and what I think both pieces fall a little bit short of delivering, is more a more well-rounded understanding of what queer life was like in previous eras where yes you know discrimination abuse uh you know alienation were more pronounced than they are now in many places but where people still built incredible communities um personal relationships entire cultures that we don't know a lot about and that i would love to see either imagined um on a on a fictional level or described on a historical level. Um, Like there was one line in one of the episodes of equal where they just casually mentioned that there were 80 gay bars in Los Angeles. What, what were they like? You know, I'm sure there was a taxonomy of where different people hung out. And uh, I I would love to see a film. That's just a, you know, day in the life of the, 80 gay bars in Los Angeles. Like there's, I just feel so oversaturated with narratives of discrimination and overcoming discrimination that I'd like to see more um, narratives that just take me back into that time in history and allow me to put myself there and, and like claim these people as my ancestors on a more human level. I think that's that's so well put. I, I agree completely. Um, maybe the only thing I would add is just it seems like in both cases, both the case of the boys in the band and um, the remake and the uh, and equal that there's there's an issue with with um, how the the creators or the the sort of people managing these products are thinking about their audiences, um, and I think you know. One way of putting it might be that 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 I I hope whether you're doing fiction or 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 historical fact work that that you sort of trust your audience more uh, to be able to handle more or and and I think in the case of boys that might have looked like you know either either changing the play and I you know we talked about whether that's possible but or or providing you know more context and just dropping it in your Netflix feed right like giving giving us a little bit of a sense of why this thing is happening, et cetera. With Equal, I think it's trusting that we could handle, you know, a full 30 minutes about one person, maybe. That, that you know, we are actually hungry, I think, for 
forest stories of our past and a sense of where we come from and all of that. I think that matters to a lot of people. Um, and I think you should just, as a creator, just trust that um, and and don't feel that you need to make it, you know, sexy or, or you know, exciting or taste good or something, right? Like, you know, Billy Porter could still do the narration, but, like, he doesn't need to, to, oh to God, do Drag no, Race or whatever no. it was he said. Um, well, like Ramon like said, he, he, like, he, I actually think we're... Uh, how do I, we like have scurvy to continue that vitamin analogy, you know, it's, mm -hmm. I don't think there's a problem with a vitamin rich piece of queer documentary in a, a diet that is not so full of that vitamin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and by the yeah. same token, I, I don't think that there's a problem with approaching fiction as a way of containing our history or showing a way forward. In fact, I think fiction is a remarkably useful tool for that. But you know what I want is a Christine Jorgensen biopic. That's what I want. That seems very rich material to me, a story that genuinely is not well known, not well understood, and could really show this contemporary moment how to understand, how to talk about our trans allies right like are the trans people in this culture and to take one person's specific life experience and learn something from that and make it not a tragedy but a triumph you know i'm also a little i mean i think as we all are i'm a little tired of the sort of conventional narrative of queer tragedy that's we've had enough of that where can we go from there um again i don't think that was the interest in the production of boys in the band but I do think that is part of the interest of equal is to show to show this relationship between the past and the present. And I would love texts that do that. I'm just not sure that either one of these is that. All right. I think that's all the time we have for all of this. Uh, Listeners, if you'd like to watch the things that we did, you can watch Boys in the Band on Netflix, available now, and Equal comes out on HBO Max on October 22nd. All right, now it's time for our Gay Agenda, Queer History Month edition. Ruman, what are you going to recommend? So we were really talking about the past in this episode. And I think it is very valuable to steep ourselves in queer history. But the shortcomings for me of equal in particular are that sometimes you, sometimes you need to read up on the facts, right? Sometimes it's useful to know the dates, the names, the players, but my own experience of encountering queerness with that uncomfortable shock of recognition didn't come from history. It came from art and I don't think that's uncommon. I think that's why we talk about Will and Grace, for example, as a turning point in the cultural attitude. So I want to talk about a book by a writer named David Levitt. It's called Family Dancing. He published this book in 1983. It's a collection of short stories, several of which had first appeared in The New Yorker in the years just prior. The writer at that time was only in his 20s. I read this book furtively when I was a teenager, and I marveled at its depiction of gay life. And yes, it is white, middle-class gay life. But it's revolutionary. You know, The New Yorker was and remains the arbiter of high literary taste, and that they would look at this work of a young gay artist and say, this is art, means a lot. I loved that book then as art, but I loved it more as a mirror and I really think that matters. 
it's worth looking at queerness in art and how that's changed. And these days we have a very vital queer literature. We have Carmen Maria Machado, we have Brian Washington, we have Ocean Vong. David Lovett is a great artist, but should also be thought of as one of the very few who paved the way for the many. So losing yourself in fiction can be really fun and rewarding, and I highly recommend picking up family dancing. Christina, what do you have on your gay agenda for the month? I'm going to recommend an experience that you can only avail yourself of in Washington, D.C., where I live. Um, A few years ago, I did an LGBTQ history walking tour of the Congressional Cemetery, which is thought to be the only cemetery in the world with an LGBTQ section. It's um, a non-denominational cemetery. Contrary to the name, you don't have to be a member of Congress to be buried there. In fact, you can buy a plot there if you want to be buried in the gay corner of the cemetery. It's a beautiful place. In the spring, they have a lot of flowering trees. You can bring your dog there. This won't Walking through the cemetery in itself won't tell you a lot about queer history, but if you, if it means something to you to be in places where you can pay tribute to queer elders, uh, this is a place to do it. But if you aren't able to do a walking tour there that's guided, which I think Atlas Obscura does a guided tour every now and then, you can Google it online. You can do a self-guided walking tour. There's a pamphlet that you can download um, to do it yourself. That's such a nice reminder that, like, all of this history that can feel so abstract is fundamentally really human. Mm -hmm. That these were real people and that they lived on this planet and that they are interred in its earth. That's very moving. Yeah. It's really lovely. Yeah, I definitely want to do that next time I'm in D.C. That sounds amazing. I'll do it with you, Brian. Yes, please. Yes, please. (laughs) What Um, are you going to recommend for us? So I have a sad one this month. Um, We uh, just... I think maybe two weeks ago now, or earlier in, in October, lost uh, Monica Roberts, who uh, was a really fantastic uh, journalist and activist. She uh, is uh, best known for her work for her blog, which is called Trans Grio, um, where she blogged about uh, trans and queer issues since yeah. 2006. Um, she died suddenly, so it's unexpected. Uh, people are very much grieving um, uh, in the trans community, in the black trans community, and in journal- queer journalism, certainly. Um, so I just want to encourage our listeners to go, if you don't know her work, uh, to go look her up. Um, you can read uh, everything that she wrote on the blog. Uh, we'll post um, some obits and a profile as well on our show page so you can learn more. But um, she was just amazing. She, she was really ahead of her time. Um, covering the things she did, especially she would cover um, murders of trans women and trans women of color um, well before any mainstream outlets were doing that. Um, she, she was a really a, a force for that, um, for that journalism work. So um, it's very sad that she passed, but um, her work was amazing uh, and, and that will live on. And she has certainly inspired a whole younger generation um, of journalists, including myself. I got, I didn't know her personally, but I got to sort of be with her at uh, LGBT journalism conferences and she was just incredible. Um, so uh, sad, sad to lose her, but, um, but you know, the work is there. And so um, I hope everybody can go look up Monica Roberts and, and learn more um, about her part of our queer history. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Like it's, it touches on that notion of journalism as the first draft of history, mm-hmm. right? Like, what an important corrective, what an important perspective to have, and what a terrible, tragic loss. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that is what we have for this Queer History Month. As always, please send us your feedback or topic ideas at outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. He's also our resident Ryan Murphy expert, and we're so happy that he was able to join us on this episode. I learned from Wikipedia (laughs) that the title of Boys in the Band comes from something that was said to Judy Garland, that she was singing for the boys in the band. Huh. We are singing for June Thomas, (laughs) the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. She's our boy in the band. (laughs) If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app and tell your friends about it. Rate and review the show so others can find it. Outward will be back in your feeds on November 18th. Until then, please stay gay. Stay gay, you guys. Yeah. Bye, Bye, guys. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.